0: Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to tomisticinstituteorg slash Rome. That's tomisticinstituteorg slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at thomisticinstitute.org.
1: Aristotle goes into a lot of details about friendship. And It's not entirely easy to pull them together um, into a completely unified picture. So what I've done is to group, I've just picked two main headings, and these two headings together capture many of the things that Aristotle has to say. Um, And that, I think, will be good enough. So one of them is equality and inequality. That's to say, in friendship. And then the other is the activity of friendship. What friends do. So, equality and inequality. On Aristotle's way of thinking, um, friendships of any sort are most straightforward to understand and function when they involve equality. So here so he talks about like equal friendships i'm thinking of for example of book a chapter 13 um, and so you have an equality of giving and you have a, an equality of affection so the two parties like each other about the same and each one contributes about the same now, I keep saying, you know, you've noticed, I say about the same. I think for Aristotle, it, it would be vulgar to keep careful track. If you're like, if you have a little book and you know over the past 10 years how many times you gave the other guy a ride and how many times he gave, like, there's something wrong. with it. Um, You're just not supposed to approach things in that way. So, um, so yeah, about the same. So the two friends like each other about the same and each contributes about as much to the relationship as the other one does. And notice, this actually applies to all three kinds of friendship. So in a a complete friendship, the friends are basically equally good and they have equal respect for one another and they... Do things for each other about the same. In a friendship of utility, each friend is getting about the same amount of benefit out of the relationship. So you and your neighbor help each other about the same. You know, you lend him your lawnmower, he lends you his weed whacker. You know, when you're sick, he plows your driveway or whatever. It's about the same. Or, Slightly more complicated um, situation, but it's easily understood. Um, your mechanic does good work for your car, and you pay him fairly. right? So that's a, it's a little le- less straightforward why that's equal, but in another way, it's super obvious, right? You pay him what he's worth. Whatever that actually means is actually really hard to say. But like we think we know, and so you pay people fairly. In friendships of pleasure each of the friends enjoys the outings about as much as the other. So you get together with your friends to go out for, for beers or whatever, and everybody's having roughly the same amount. Um, now, this will come up a little bit later, but this equality... If the equality is disturbed too much, there's going to be squabbles and disagreements, right? Um, And Aristotle says, interestingly, that in in the case of a friendship of utility, it's more likely for squabbles to come up. Because basically what the relationship is about is what you're getting at. In a friendship of goodness, what the relationship is about is giving. So, if you give a little more than the other person, that's not going to really bother you all that much because that's what the relationship is about for you anyway. Now, if it goes on too long, then after a while you might be, I'm trying to understand what's happening with our friendship here. Right right. And that's reasonable enough. But it doesn't sort of immediately arise. So, on the one hand, yeah, okay. Now, so. It's easier to understand all these cases if the friends are basically equal uh, Then you just have to say in the case of the three different kinds of friendships to see how that works. Now, what if the friends are not equal? Then things are more complicated. Now, the, the inequality can take various forms, right? So sometimes some people are just more virtuous than other people. They're just kind of better. And so there may be two people, and they basically have a relationship based on their goodness. It's not a relationship of utility or pleasure. But still, they're not equal, and that's going to affect the relationship in some way. Also, and something analogous is going to apply in, the, in a relationship of utility or pleasure. So some people are just better at providing benefit, like they're stronger or, you know, you work together for somebody, I don't know, like you and somebody else form um, a little company to do copy editing and your business partner is just a faster editor than you. are. That can happen, right? So then, in, you know, issues can arise there. Um, or, you know, in a, a relationship of pleasure, you know, maybe you're just funnier than your friend or whatever, right? Okay. Now, so there's a way in which Aristotle wants to just acknowledge that there can be friendships between unequal. It's a sort of obvious fact. On the other hand, He doesn't want to ditch the idea that friendship involves equality. So the idea seems to be that although the friends are unequal, something extra happens in the relationship, and that something extra helps equalize it. And so you end up with equality after all. It's just more complicated. So in a friendship between unequals, um, you're going to have this extra factor going on in which they give and receive different things. So, try to think of a case in which two people have a friendship, but one of them actually contributes more on a consistent, ongoing basis, right? So, it's not just this week, I'm having a bad week, and my friend's carrying most of the load. I mean, that's just part of the ups and downs of any relationship. But when it's like a consistent, long-term thing. So, Aristotle's idea is this. If this friendship works out well in the long term, that's going to be because the person on the receiving end balances it out by, let's say, giving honor and thanks. So if the one, you know, if, if the, fr- I mean, okay, let, let me, I don't know whether this is a good enough example, but I'll just stick with it. Think of, you've got this little informal company to do copy editing with a friend, right? And let's say your friend is a faster copy editor than you. Now, if you just act like that's the way things are, your friend might be a little miffed about that. But if you, every once in a while, you just say, oh, thanks, man, we never could have gotten that done without you. You're so much faster than I am. I'm just really so grateful. You know, think of what would happen to our little company without you. And then now that kind of like balances things out. And the friend's like, yeah, thanks for saying that. It's okay. Right? And if they're like magnanimous, they're not going to go, sorry, a little bit more right? Like, I need a little bit more thanks today. Yeah. But they're acknowledging the inequality. And it's good for you, too. You're acknowledging the inequality. And then, so they give a whole bunch of copy editing. You give a little bit less copy editing and some honor. <laughs> and now everybody's squared away. Um, or think of another example. Um, there's a kind of friendship you can have with your parents. Now let's leave out, for at least for now, um, the case where like your parents are like abusive and toxic. So let's suppose that it's like a basically OK relationship with your parents. Aristotle would say, and he's definitely on to something here there's a way in which you can never repay your parents, because they gave you existence. Okay? That is a lot, because without that, you got nothing. So they gave you, in a sense, everything. You can't repay that. But, so, so like, you just can't. But that's okay. You honor them, you look up to them, stuff like that. And that sort of balances it out. in some way. On the other hand, Aristotle says, and this is a very interesting remark, he says that there are like limits to this. That's to say there's limits to the, to the extent to which honor and praise and thanks Can balance out inequality. If it goes too far, then it's not really a friendship. So, I mean, just imagine, um, I don't know, like, you know, you're like a full-blown adult and one of your main friends is a four-year-old. Okay. Now the four-year-old can't really do much of anything. Okay. Because it's not his fault. He's four. But the fact is like, it's, it's so incredibly unequal. It's so incredibly one-sided. And let's say it's actually kind of a sophisticated four year old who, instead of being like an ungrateful little brat, is constantly thanking you. I mean, it's great, but it's just like a 95 to five relationship or a 99 to one relationship. It's not really friendship, or something like that. So, um, so I don't know if that's a good example. Um, it has to be a prox- it has to be close enough to equal, otherwise you're not going to be talking about friendship. This is what Aristotle's thinking. Okay, and he explicitly denies that we can be friends with God. Which is a very, very interesting point if you think about it from a Christian point. Okay, now, I mentioned the inequality with your parents. So let me bring in family now, which Aristotle discusses. Um, at some length, um, I could have made a special topic out of it, it is an interesting topic, but I'm here slotting it under the inequality category, I don't know, because I am. Um, um, at the very least, in a family, you have an inequality between parents and children. That's just by nature, that's inevitable, there's nothing that can be done about that. Um as ch- when children become adults, the the degree of inequality lessens, um, but it never entirely goes away. Um, for Aristotle, also, you're going to have inequality between the husband and wife. Like there's just that's just definitely the case from his point of view. Um, we might not think he's got that part quite as right. <laughs> now. Um, So that's one thing about family relationships. At least some of them involve inequality. Another thing that makes family relationships or friendships special is that they are not based on decision in the way that normal friendships are. Now, of course, the husband and the wife do decide to get married, but children do not pick their parents, right? You ever notice that? Like, you just can't pick your parents. And leaving aside the case of adoption, parents don't really pick their children anyway. Like, you can't, I mean, it's up to you, but like, you have no control over which kids end up, the ones you get, you know. So you just get what you get. Um, So the element of choice is taken largely away. You are just stuck with these. You may not have chosen this person as your sister, but you know what? She's your sister. Um, Now, Aristotle says that between parents and children, um, especially, there's less otherness than in other kinds of relationships. Um, Parents belong to their children in a certain way. and He makes statements that sound pretty shocking, I think, to us. Um, And I think it's maybe okay to allow ourselves to be a little... Shocked by the things that he says, but it's also not a bad idea to take them seriously because I think they're less crazy than they sound. Like, well, or, or let me put it this way I think we have a certain rhetoric of, around children on, and the autonomy of children, um, which has some value to it, but also tends to obscure from us the way we actually do relate to our children if we have them and the way parents relate to children. Um, so he says that parents love children because the children come from the parents. And so in a way, it's a kind of self-love because your children are like a part of it. Now you might say that sounds crazy. Like Aristotle is a madman. He thinks that parents own their children. He's evil. Well, I, I mean, you may be right, but just think about it. Okay. You're on the sidelines and you're watching a bunch of little kids play soccer. Now, one of those kids out there, you want that kid to score a goal a lot more than any of those other kids. Why? Because it's your kid, right? And you actually, I mean, you could say this is irrational. I don't know what to say about it. It's just the way things happen. You'll feel proud when your kid scores a goal. It's almost as if you scored the goal. Wait, what did Aristotle say? It's almost as if the parent the children are like belong to the parents and are like a part of the parents. So the fact is I mean, it's not always good, but it sort of just is the way it is. Parents think of their children as belonging to them in a way, in a sort of special way. And it's interesting. I'll just ma- I'll just comment on this right here. I'll just drop this little comment and let you worry about it. Um Sometimes Aristotle is definitely talking about how things ought to be. Other times he's talking about the way they are, just kind of without comment. So like, where does this point that I'm making here, that parents think of their children as part of them, where does it sit on that spectrum? You know, is it good that parents think of children that way? Or is he just saying, well, they do? I think for Aristotle, because goodness is grows out of nature, like you're not going to have a sharp dichotomy between them. But still, um, it's worth wondering, you know, okay, so parents love their children as having come from themselves, and so they have a lot invested in their children. It means a lot to them that their children are successful, things like that. He says, children love parents as their source. Uh, and I think it's true even if even if your parents are really mean and bad and destructive, and of course this happens, it's a real thing. It's very hard for people to just go, Well, whatever, I don't care about them anymore it's still you still wish you got along with them. They're not just some other adult um and so it's somehow you know if you can't if it's hard to love your parents or in some way it's almost impossible, at least if it's impossible to feel affection for them, even if you can grit your teeth and take care of them when they need it, um it's a loss, right um. And you can tell that something has gone wrong because of this bond that you have for them. And and what Aristotle says is that the bond is that is that you received yourself from them in a way. I mean, you literally, they brought you, they generated you. And then beyond that, they did stuff for you when you were a kid, hopefully. Um, Or if they didn't, again, they should have, you see. So you you can tell what the relationship ought to have been. And then there's this. A kind of pain or a kind of wound that's caused by the fact that the relationship isn't what it should be. And then he says that siblings love each other as sharing a source, right? So brothers and sisters love one another because they all come from the same place. He also says that um, people who live in the same family tend to be similar in character and preferences. I think this is especially true of siblings, they grow up in the same house together. They tend to like the same activities. They've grown to pick up, you know. They've they they share personality traits, um, and I don't know. I mean, I look at my siblings, and in certain ways, I mean, certain ways, I'm rather different from them. But in, we have a lot of personality traits that are semi in common. It was actually a while uh, into adulthood before I started noticing. Um, or like somebody I knew met some of my brothers and said, Well you your brothers are just like you I said really are they and then I started looking was like, actually okay, I see that um but I hadn't realized it before um so because of this, these things are 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 gonna um make it more likely for friendships to emerge because they're sort of on the same wavelength um so an interesting case, right? It's, there's very little choice involved, um, but there is a kind of friendship among family members, Aristotle said. And it would be interesting to ask yourself, or I mean, I mean, for me to ask myself, whatever, one might ask, in the cases where we say, yeah, they're my siblings, but they're not my friends, what do we mean by that? And are we contradicting Aristotle, right? Because remember, he sometimes uses friend in a kind of broad way. So you might go, yeah, okay. So it's my brothers and sisters. We get together, you know, at certain times of year. That's an important thing. But they're not my friends. And so you could ask why, what that means. And maybe some of the things that are said later will help to make that clear. But so um, the, the gaps between what Aristotle says and what we would say are worth exploring. You can learn a lot by it trying to figure out why, is it like a verbal difference or is it a disagreement or what's going on? Okay. So, so much about equality and inequality. Now, I just want to almost completely shift gears and just talk about this other heading, which is how do friends act? What does it mean to be a friend? What do friends do? So, the first thing... I want to mention is that for Aristotle, uh, this should be fairly obvious, I think, from what I've been saying, friendship is more than wishing well, it's also um, acting well. you have to act for the friend's benefit. So if wishing well is benevolence, which means willing well or something like that, right benevolence, you also want to have beneficence. you want to actually. Do something about it. You have to give. So this is one of Aristotle's a thing that keeps coming up in his discussion. Friendship is about giving. And that's like the characteristic act of a friend towards a friend is to give. So remember the example that I mentioned last um, before lunch. He mentions the case of you see someone in a competition and you're like rooting for him. But you're not going to do anything for him, right? So that's not even leaving aside the fact that it's not mutual, it's, this is a case of benevolence without beneficence. You're not going to lift a finger to help that guy win the NBA final. You just kind of hope he does. And you'll be glad, but like, it's his problem, it's not mine, right? All right. Now, so friends have to give to one another. And they act together. They do things together. And he says that requires living together. Now, I don't think he means like under the same roof, but um, they have to live together. And think of these cases like you see see in the the Confessions where Augustine and some of his buddies, they're like, you know, we should like get a house and we'll all live in that house that we can do stuff together, right? That's the kind of thing they're thinking, right? They want to do live out a certain kind of friendship and so one of the places their minds goes is how can we all live in the same place you have to be aristotle would say you have to be near enough and to be together enough to see each other to talk together and to do things together to act together to cooperate and that may be by the way one of the reasons why you have siblings that you get along with but you're not sure that they're your friends if they live on the other side of the country and you only see them a few times it makes it harder to like live it out as a friendship you see what i mean okay so just okay so back to the main point friends in um to give to one another and to act together they have to live together aristotle says if friends are separated um because you know one of them moves to thebes or whatever <laughs> then um the goodwill that they have towards one another can remain while their shared and mutual activity ceases. So it can go on like that, and the friendship is, in a sense, sort of put on hold. But, he says, if it goes on for too long, then the friendship starts. to. And, you know, if you've ever had this experience, when you get back together with people, it's not. sometimes you can start up again right away, but not always. A little, you probably knew, knew this was coming, but I think we now have to have a little sidetrack here. Now we have remote work, right? Lots of people work remotely. My impression is that remote work has not universally turned out to be such a great thing. Or like sometimes the employees think it's great and the bosses are not so sure. Um, so it may be that a little bit more than people were thinking or hoping, you have to be together to work together. Well, working together can be a kind of friendship of utility. Anyway, it raises the more general question, can we have remote friendships? So, this is an argument you can easily imagine someone making, I'm sure right now someone is making this argument somewhere on the internet. If only because for any argument you can think of right now, someone is making it on the internet. <coughs> So, so we could say communications technology, we have email, we have texting, we have Zoom, all of that stuff. It's so much easier to fulfill this requirement. You don't have to live near people anymore to be friends. with. That's an attractive sounding argument, right? I mean, isn't friendship about communication? Isn't email and cell phones and Zoom, isn't that, aren't those means of communication? What's the problem? Okay, maybe, (laughs) but I'm skeptical. Um, I think at a certain point, relying too much on this kind of technology amounts to living in a way that's not really in accord with our nature. Because we are not angels, we are not minds, but we are rational animals. And and animals have bodies, and they live in places. Like, all of us here, we're in the same room. That makes a difference. If we were angels, that issue wouldn't arise. Angels basically just send text messages to each other all the time. But, um, uh, I mean, sort of. But, um, but humans are three-dimensional animals, and they live in the same space. So I'm not saying that, like, talking to somebody on the phone is, like, satanic or I'm not saying that, but I just think there's a real question that needs to be asked about how far you can take. this. I mean, I do, in fact, have broader questions about the influence of this technology on us as rational animals, but I'm just focusing on the question of friendship. It looks like these kinds of, you know, long distance communications technologies can be a good sort of support for a relationship that's primarily carried out in real physical presence, in real life. But I think it's possible that um, trying to build a, a friendship primarily on that long term is just out of whack with human nature. And if your relationship with your friend is out of whack with your nature and your friend's nature, it's going to be out of whack. Because we can only have the kinds of friendships that we human beings can have
0: but it seems to me almost you know, are implied could we only have um, friends that can interact with in person. Right. right, right. So, yeah. I'm curious what, what would you think Yeah.
1: That? Okay, so so I don't know how, how well y'all could hear that, but I hope I summarize this right. So you were sort of saying it's probably right that if you never or almost never spent time in in person with the person with the other person. Then, then you couldn't really be very good friends with them. But it is possible to have something, some kind of friendships with people that you've never met or that you rarely meet. So I think that's right. Um, but you just have to realize that, again, there's there's primary senses of friendship, and then there are secondary and reduced and qualified senses of friendship. And somebody that you know pretty much exclusively through the chat function of a video game Is not going to be as full a friend as somebody that you can live several streets away from and see in person. Um, So there's no need to be extreme and to deny that that's a friendship in any sense. So it can be a friendship in some sense. But it seems to me just important to remember that it can fall short of the fullness of friendship and that. We've been sort of engaging in this kind of um, social experiment for a while now where we say, like, how far can we go? And I feel like the answer is starting to look like not as far as we've tried. Um, And again, like, I don't want to blame everything on the cell phone, although I do. But, um, I mean, what things like cell phones and the internet and stuff do, or what I'll say, I'll try to be a little more cautious. One of the main things that they do is they accelerate um, things that were already there, so it was already possible to write letters, right? So it's not like long-distance communication got invented in the 1990s. That's not true. There were already letters um, in the ancient world, in fact. But still, um, those things have been have been become accelerated, um, and we use them a lot more. And even a letter is more physical. Then, you know, I mean, a letter, like if I write you a letter, like I touched it. That's my handwriting, you know. OK. Um. Yeah, so it needs thinking through. And this is like, I mean, I mean, I really do think this is like a major, huge technological. Sorry, let me start again. This sort of constellation of technologies, smartphones, email, social media. All of those things together are an extreme extremely disruptive force in our society. And they're sort of, they're huge. They're not like disruptive like um, knife and fork. They're way more disruptive than that. They're disruptive like the car or the pill. They're just huge, huge things that like reorganize society. And things that reorganize society, first of all, they cause a lot of trouble even when they're good. And they aren't always good. Sometimes they reorganize society in ways that have a lot of bad. So I think it's just really worth not just going along with it, but asking, is this good or is this actually bad? And just because everyone does it, um, doesn't make it good. So anyway, I bring this up in the context of friendship, right? I'm not trying to um, sidetrack the whole discussion, but it it, it comes up in the question of friendship. And how important is it to live near your friends? Is it a big deal or a small deal if you move to a different city and leave all your friends behind because you get a better job? Is that like not a big deal because you have Zoom or is that actually a big deal? It's not like a momentum. It's worth asking. Okay. So let me say more now about the activity of friendship, not just... So, so far we've been sort of talking about what Aristotle thinks is an important precondition of the activity of friendship, namely proximity being near other people. So now I want to talk about the activity itself. So I'll say now for like the 80th time, um, the most characteristic thing in friendship is giving rather than receiving, loving rather than being loved. So here I will quote this amazing passage. Um, if you've got this edition, um, it's on on 151. This is book eight, chapter eight. I'll just read, it's the, um, it's around um, 1159A27 or so. Aristotle says, I find this passage remarkable, I must say. Okay. Um, Friendship seems to consist more in loving than in being loved. A sign of this is the enjoyment a mother finds in loving. For sometimes she gives her child away to be brought up and loves him as long as she knows about him. But she does not seek the child's love if she cannot both love and be loved. She would seem to be satisfied if she sees the child doing well. And she loves the child even if ignorance prevents him from returning to her what is due to a mother. Now, you might say, and maybe it would be right, I I mean, I can't decide whether he's being a little cavalier about this, right? It's very difficult for a mother to do that. I don't know that he is being cavalier, but I'm just saying if it occurs to you, I don't think it's wrong to ask that question. But here he's presenting a kind of selfless loving as a kind of paradigm for friendship. And he's managed to find a really extreme case where you get almost nothing back. I mean, all you get is you get to see the kid every once in a while. Oh, he's doing okay. You know? So I find that a poignant passage, um, not something I would have predicted from other things that Aristotle says, maybe. Uh, and makes me like Aristotle. And um, yeah, so the highlight is on the importance of giving. Uh, and friends are eager to give aid and they're slow to receive it. They're not, they're like, oh, no, 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 don't do that for me. But then um, Aristotle very nicely mentions that you shouldn't always refuse help because if you do that, then you're denying your friends. Something that they need, namely the opportunity to give to you. So let them give you something. Because that's a way of giving something to them. It's a very interesting remark. Okay, since the... Another point about friendship. If only for practical reasons, he says, you can't have many perfect friends, friends in the full sense. There just isn't time, and there isn't. I don't think he puts it this way, of course, but like there's, you just don't. You've only got so much bandwidth, right? You've only got so much psychic space, so you can't have like, um. You know, you can have five hundred Facebook friends, but like Facebook friends are not that kind of friend. You can't have five hundred friends. You probably can't even have ten. So um, it's a sort of time-consuming and energy-consuming. Thing, um, and it's not itself an emotion. I think it's more of a lasting attitude. It's a kind of a virtue. It's a second nature oriented towards this particular person, uh, and it gives rise to character to the characteristic of act- activity of of giving, and it in obviously also involves love and affection for the friend. Um, the sense in which it's not the same as an emotion is is partly that you also give in addition to feeling affection but it's also that because it's rooted in your rational judgment that this person is really good and lovable then that is going to be more stable than how you happen to be feeling so maybe today you're tired and grumpy and whatever and you're just don't really feel very well disposed towards your friend today. But that's not all that important, really, because it's not about how you feel about it. Okay. Let me see a little bit more about the priority of giving. Um, There's a, I can't remember which uh, Walker Percy novel, but in one of the novels, the narrator says, mentions someone in his life, so-and-so, And he says, this guy loves me because he saved my life in the war. Now he doesn't say, I love him because he saved my life. He says, he loves me because he saved my life. It's a very interesting remark, right? Right. And Aristotle has a whole discussion about um, why do benefactors like the beneficiary more than the other way around, right? If somebody gives something to somebody else, why do they tend to love that person more than the opposite? And then he, he he entertains this kind of cynical theory. You want the benefactor wishes well to the beneficiary so that the beneficiary will be around and pay him back. It's kind of like if you lend somebody money, now you're like, whoa, I hope he doesn't get killed. Right? And Aristotle says, no, 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 that's not what's going on here. Um, it's more like when you give to somebody, then one of your good deeds is now like, lives on in them. So part of your own goodness now resides in them. The beneficiary receives something useful, which is great, but what the benefactor gave was, in a way, something more than usefulness, right? His own deed was a fine deed, as Aristotle says. And so, um, like, some of your own, some of the goodness of your own life is now externalized and living out in the other person. And one thing, when I was reflecting on this, um, it occurred to me that that gives you an extra reason to thank the people who benefit. And this is the idea I have. So obviously, like, you could take a cynical view and say that when you thank people, it's just like you're giving them an ego trip, right? They're like, oh, yes, yes, please thank me. I'm so great. Everyone, please thank me. Right? And that makes it look really bad. But I don't think that's the right way to think of it. Um, When you thank people for doing something, it lets them know that they actually did do something. And, I mean, you probably had this experience already, and if you haven't, you will. You try to do things for people, and you don't actually know whether you're benefiting them or not. Um, I mean, forgive me for using this example is a little too... um, Well, I don't know. There's nothing wrong with this example. If you're a teacher, a lot of students are just like, "Uh uh-huh, and you don't know whether they're getting anything out of it or not. And it's nice to know, and it's not, or not, I mean, maybe it's an ego trip, but I don't think so. You would just like to know that you actually succeeded in teaching them. So, so when people do something for you, you can thank them as a way of letting them know that um, they did a good deed. Um, a thought. Now, friendships sometimes involve disputes. Aristotle said, "I mean, what do you know? Life isn't perfect." Okay, he says that they arise least of all in friendships of goodness. Each party wants to help the other, so that you're less likely to get involved in a dispute. In friendships of pleasure. Yeah, this is very interesting remark. He said, in a way, they don't really give rise. I think the way of putting his point is they it, it don't exactly give rise to disputes. They just fall apart. So if we go out to the bar a lot together, and after a while, um, you start to find me really boring because I've only got, like, five stories, and it was funny the first time, and it was kind of funny the second time. But, like, they're just – you've heard them. Um, you're not going to like file a grievance you're not going to complain like what are you going to complain about right you'll just stop going with me you see so um so you know like like you you can't accuse someone of being boring like this doesn't totally make sense all right so he says disputes mostly arrive in in friendships of utility and the ground for accusation arises when you think that you're giving more than you're receiving When a friendship of utility becomes too unequal, then he starts to say, Hang on a second. I thought we had a carpool here, not me providing a free Uber service. What is this? Right? Now, um, he says sometimes friendships of utility are contractual. People agree ahead of time. So it's shocking to say, like, contractual friendships with contracts, but this is how he talks about it. And besides, you know, marriage is. Sort of a contract, just saying. <laughs> okay, never mind. So, no, but I mean, it is. So, he um, says sometimes friendships of utility, I'm not saying marriage is friendship of utility. Um, that's a different question. Um, friendship, uh, we could talk about that. Um, some friendships of utility, there's like a contract, right? Like a carpool and we agree, okay? Other times they're not, they're based on expectations, right? So, um, and and he says, I think this is very interesting. Um, he says sometimes people give to other people and they think they're being generous and they like the thought I'm being generous, but they're not real. They're hoping to get something back. They don't quite even realize that themselves. Uh, and then if they don't get something back, they resent. And he even gives you sort of a practical tip: if somebody wants to give you something but they have a hope of return you should think about whether you want to provide the return that they're looking for. And if you don't, then you should probably just not go there. So let's say somebody takes you out to dinner, and it's pretty clear that the reason he wants to do that is he's going to ask you for some amazingly big favor, and you just don't want to do it. Don't go out for the dinner. Don't go, well, we'll see. He, He agreed to it. Like, you're just creating trouble. Right? Because he's going to expect that you're going to say, yes, yes, I will look after your three dogs for two weeks when you're in Florida. And when you go, you've got to be kidding, he's going to be pissed off. So just don't go to the dinner. Advice from Uncle Aristotle. Okay, almost done. Um, Aristotle says, maybe you have a number of friendships... And that's especially easy to see if you think in terms of the wide variety of friendships Aristotle identifies. If there are going to be situations where there's going to be trade-offs or competitions, you can't satisfy all of the demands of all of these friendships. So what do you do? And he says, "Well, it's complicated, right? Um, we owe different things to different friends, and different kinds of things to different kinds of friends." And he says, "A rough rule is that you pay debts before showing favor. So, you know, if you let me a hundred bucks, I should give you a hundred bucks before I blow a hundred bucks at the bar with my buddy." Right? So that sounds about right. But then he says, "You know, it's not always um, he says, sometimes other factors intervene. So he gives this crazy sounding example.) Um, you were captured and somebody ransomed you. So you'd like to pay him back. Like, that's what you should do. So you've got together, you know, your 5,000 drachmas and you're going to, like, pay back. But then your father gets captured. Well, geez, look, it's your father. So you have to just ransom your father. And the other guys, well, where are my drachmas? You're like, look, it was my father. I just, so, so like, so different things can trump different things. And I don't think, Aristotle would say, like, there are not strict rules here there's rules of thumb and you have to use prudent. It. but it's a very interesting little reflection on the conflicting claims of friendship and this is the kind of thing that comes up in advice columns okay um yeah good i'm done so much for equality and inequality and the the activity of friendship that's all mm-hmm. Yeah, if you yeah. as soon as that came out of my mouth, I thought, I can't just say that and not talk about it. <laughs> so, the main thing that springs to mind um, is a paper that a friend of mine, Angela Knoebel, wrote about Aquinas on friendship. Now, one of the sad things about the history of philosophy and theology is that Thomas Aquinas died before finishing the Summa Theologiae. He had just started writing about the sacraments, um, but he never got to writing about marriage. So we don't have like his mature thoughts, or what would have been his mature thoughts on marriage. Um, but what Cannoble does in this paper is to compare things that Aristotle sorry, that Aquinas says about marriage in um, his sentences commentary, so like one of his earliest works. And then in the Summa Contra Gentiles, which is a kind of later, or more mature work, And what she does especially is look at how he uses... So Aquinas talks about marriage as a kind of friendship, and he quotes Aristotle. And this is like a strategy you can use for reading Aquinas. Which passages of Aristotle is he quoting? Try to figure out what's going on. So in the earlier work, Aquinas mostly talks about marriage as if it were a friendship of utility. But in the later discussion. He talks about it more using the material about friendship, perfect friendships. Um, Now, Aquinas still, Aquinas has complicated views. Sometimes he talks as if husband and wife are equal, other times, no. But still, he treats it not merely as a a friendship of utility, but also as a friendship based on the goodness of the parties concerned. And I think it's, there's actually, you could just say, well, finally, he got his act together. But I think it's a little bit more complicated than that, and it's worth reflecting on. Um, Aristotle says that the city, so I'm totally switching gears here for a second, but political life arises out of necessity. But then later it's for the sake, he says it arises for the sake of living, but eventually it exists for the sake of living well. So the first reason people gather together in communities. It's just to have a bit of division of labor and fight off the bears and not die. But then after a while, the city gets more sophisticated and it becomes possible to actually start living well and to have education and the arts and things like that. So it has a a basis in kind of material necessity, but it can grow into something bigger than that. So at its roots, marriage is this rather practical business about. Um, like children and making sure that they come to be and are taken care of properly. Um, and it's a kind of there's a, a definitely like a utility dimension to marriage like it's kind of a job and you have to like take care of a house together and you have to like buy cars and take care of children there's a lot of work involved it's not just like having fun all the time um and yet, it can and should, ideally, be a lot more than that. So, it, But it's built on that sort of utilitarian think. And that's kind of characteristic of it, it seems to me. Um, have you ever seen that little tiny book called Sarah Plain and Tall? Has anybody read that book? I recommend it. You can read it in, like, probably 10 minutes. It's like one of those tiny little books for children. I don't want to spoil too much of it. but. Um, it's about a guy who lives out in the American West in, like, the 19th century, and he and his wife have some kids, and the wife dies. And so he puts an ad in a newspaper back east. He says, I need a wife. And so Sarah responds, and she says in the, um, in the letter, she's, she, descri- she describes herself a little bit. She says, I'm plain and tall. So then, so then he says, all right, let's give it a try. So she moves out and they have to like figure out a way for her to have her own room, right? So they get to know one another and they decide to get married. And it's just very clear. It just begins. She would like a husband. He would like a wife. Need someone to help him run the homestead. But in the end, they grow to love one another. And the children are a part of that. It's a very nice little book. Um, and I think it shows how, yeah, it shows how that can happen. Does that make sense? I have a follow up, which
0: was that it seems Aristotle's conception of friendship, uh, it, it seems implicitly like same sex. Like he seems to oh. have like the friendship in mind seems to be between men and men and between women and women. Yeah, and, and uh, what I think is interesting is just when you bring some, I, I would, my mind went towards marriage when we were discussing this earlier, and about how marriage might represent. A friendship between yes. men and woman, but I don't know that Aristotle
1: clearly right, imagines a lot of friendships between men and women. So could you Yeah, no, that's a good question. Okay, so I think I mean probably the bluntest answer is the best answer. Um compared to some other Greek thinkers, Aristotle, I mean, compared to them, he's not sexist. But we would not give him a plus feminist rating. Okay, Um, I mean it gets a lot worse, but um, he does not—he does not think that women are capable of the full, full full-blown human virtue in the way that men. And so, the space in which you know it's going to be only an exceptional case where you're going to have a woman who's sufficiently up to speed that you can have a real, full relationship, friendship of virtue. Now. But remember that for Aristotle, you have a lot of, there's a, a wide range. And so in a marriage, you can have a kind of friendship of uneasiness. And he's not stupid. I mean, he doesn't think that all women are morons. So, I mean, he's going to know that some women are actually pretty smart. Um, so I do think that the sort of paradigm of friendship for him, like the fullest example, is going to be two well educated greek men <laughs> like i mean that's going to be like the highest um and you have you have to think through human nature and come to a better sense of male and female equality to to broaden that out more than he's able to i mean he's not completely incapable but you can go farther than he does and it also raises interesting questions right like you know, men and women can be friends, but then there's this complication that can become involved. Because, like, maybe it's not a good thing. Like, it, there are friendships where the last thing you want is to start falling in love with each other because that would, like, wreck it. So, but that creates difficulties and complications. But, like, I'm just evenly... You know, that's not the main issue for Eros. Yeah. Could arrows perhaps
0: act as an equalizer, like the presence of a certain type of intimacy or a coming together? Would that repair the inequality to a point of uh, th- that can sort of bridge that male female
1: Aristotle. For Aristotle, okay, I don't know a whole lot about Aristotle's views on these things, but my impression is, I mean, he doesn't give us a whole lot. You'd have to set what he does say into a context of a broader knowledge of Greek culture. Um, and you know that's not my area. I don't, you know. I mean, I think the way the Greeks think about sex—it's not like the primary, the primary. uh, Yeah, I I mean, I mean, I'm out of my depth here. But I think you know, you are sort of our sort of paradigm of this romantic relationship, candlelight dinners. Like that's not, that's not the way. Um. Yeah.
0: Yeah. in Greek culture, eros was not necessarily between equals. It was often, yeah. frequently, between unequal. So just having an, er- an erotic relationship with somebody is not enough to equalize it. Rather, the relationship of philia, philia, or agape would re- could require that, but not eros necessarily. Uh, and so that it's even in even in Plato with the team of speech, right? Eros lifts you up to a higher realm, right? So that when you love the good, you're you, there's an unequal relationship between you and the good, and you are raised up to the good. that. So Eros is often an unequal
1: relationship. That's very, no, that's good. Like, if you think about, I mean, one of the examples that Aristotle gives, this is a good example of where it's, where it's not immediately obvious whether Aristotle's describing things or whether he's approving them, but he talks about um, the relationship between, you know, an adult Greek male and the teenage boy that he's courting. And that's clearly an example, an example of unequal. Um, so, yeah, Eros is not. I think that's exactly right. It's not of itself gonna gonna make for equality. Yeah. Equality. Right. Yeah. 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 And I mean, there's a book. I can't remember who wrote it. Um, but I think it's. Uh, do you know uh, some book about? sex in the ancient world and the like bombshell that Christian, especially Paul line, sexual ethics did. The idea is that in the ancient world, the basic, um, I think that part of the claim is that like, they didn't actually, they don't so much have a male female binary as an active passive binary. Um, And the, the, the kind of equality that gets introduced, uh, into the world by Christian sexual rules. I mean, maybe they get violated a lot, but in, at least in theory, men are held under the car. That maybe that's right. Yeah, I can't remember. But and and the idea that like you don't just have sexual access to slaves anytime you want, like that's a big bomb. Here. So, but that's introduced by Christianity. That's not an ancient pagan thing. Hmm. Does Aquinas agree with Aristotle on women? Um, I think I think roughly, but he's probably I mean it would be a good idea to try to compare them in detail. Um, you know, if you're Aquinas or any other Christian thinker, you've got this problem. If you wanna like it's a problem if you want to take a very sort of hard line on male superiority. And this problem is called Mary, right? And so you sort of can't get around that. Um, and I think that's going to sort of blunt your, um, I mean, to use the word, your patriarchal views. but that's complicated. But I mean, Aquinas, I mean, Aquinas is not I mean you, but it's, it's easy to look, it's, it's easy, real easy to find passages where he basically says, look, women are more irrational, more irrational, stuff like that. He definitely says that. Um, there's a place, though, I could show you in the Summa Contra Gentiles where he says, um, why shouldn't a man have several wives? And he says, because he'll treat them um, as his servants rather than as his equal. So that's like within three pages of saying that the husband is superior to the wife. So like I, it's not entirely clear how you put all that together, but he does say it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, in both Aristotle and, I think, in most of our discussion on it, we focus on really, I think, very, very binary models of friendship, you and exactly
0: one other person. Ah, good. I wonder how this would be adapted to sort of more
1: situations. Nice. I can't think of offhand where Aristotle brings that up explicitly. Anybody notice that? Where he goes, what about when there's three friends together, four friends together? All right. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, he talks about political communities having a kind of friendship. So, there is space to that's a very good observation. So what about the book in chapter 5? of the communities is talking about the Chinese. Yeah, that's right. Um good. Yeah. But it's true. I think the paradigm is two friends. Um you know, he says the, the 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 friend is another self. He doesn't say a bunch of other selves. But I think I think that's a good observation, and it's actually really worth reflecting on because the dynamics of those friendships, friend groups, is different. And it's, and it's an important phenomenon. I
0: mean, I could imagine, like, a few in which you think all group friendships just super on binary friendships.
1: Yeah, but that's probably that too simple, inaccurate. eh? Yeah. yeah, that seems inaccurate. And I would think, okay, so this would be a really fun thing to try to think through. Um, because I'm just guessing that because when you have a sort of group or network of friends, you have a lot more complex things going on. And issues like the inequalities that arise, that tends to blunt them a little bit. You know, one person is going to be better at this, another person's going to be better at that. One person's going to have a little bit more money, but another one's going to have, you know, be funnier or whatever. Like, it just gets more complicated, but in ways that could actually make the whole thing work a whole lot better, because some of the the um, things that might stand out as difficulties due to inequalities, they sort of get obscured which is good. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at wwwthomisticinstituteorg slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.